Washington just had their eighth annual cannabis summit. I was on a panel for a uh, cannabis consumption lounge. It's still a class C felony to maintain or operate a cannabis lounge in Washington state. Um, but that was just one panel. So the um, it was called Foundations and Futures, the eighth annual cannabis summit. Started off with a, um, a welcome opening from the uh, director. And the keynote was Representative Shelley Kloba, who has been um, really helpful in, in my bill that I wrote to overturn that classy felony on maintaining and operating a cannabis lounge. So Representative Kloba was, was in the house um, and she's helped push a, a lot of our bills as well. There was a tribal innovation panel that was really interesting. And so I got to chat with the gal afterwards um, about tribal cannabis. Hopefully we'll get um, in to go and see one of those facilities and talk about that uh, later on in the year. There was an equitable capitalization and commerce panel. Very interesting. All of these things can be found at the cannabisalliance.us. After lunch, we got to speak from a gal who was in jail for 87 years, and that's where the name of her company is called, is 87, uh, Evelyn LaChapelle, uh, really interesting. Then it was the Social Consumption Lounge, where we talked about uh, how to generate enough revenue, some of the obstacles uh, that we needed to overcome, uh, what's happened in the last three years since I've written a bill, COVID, pretty self-explanatory, and what we needed to do to move forward. After my panel, there was the Building Bridges to Safe Medicine panel, followed by the closing keynote for Dr. Sue Sisley. It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Mitzi Vaughn. I am a shareholder at Cartuttle Campbell, which is a law firm um, here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the firm's been around since 1904. I'm sure when they founded the firm, they had no idea that they would be sponsoring a cannabis event, uh, but that's where we are. And so we're really happy to be here. Um, we do have a great cannabis practice. Um, and in addition to that, I have been general counsel for uh, the Coalition for Cannabis Standards and Ethics, CCSE. And then when the Alliance became the Cannabis Alliance, I was general counsel for, not was, am still. So um, I've been, I think almost nine years. Um, so we are gonna talk today about social consumption, which here we are 10 years after legalization, um, still talking about. And I have some really amazing panelists here. And I also have one on the screen over there. <laughs> That's Sarah. Sarah, um, can you introduce yourself? Tell us about yourself. Um, and then we'll have the larger conversation once everybody's been introduced. Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Stewart. Um, I have been in hospitality for about 15 years before transitioning into the cannabis space. Um, I've actually come from uh, venues like Tao uh, in LA, where I was actually um, introduced into Lowell Cafe, where I became a manager on site. It was the first cannabis restaurant in the US um, uh, based in West Hollywood. From there, I started a company called Hospitality that really helps build protocols and procedures, SOPs, um, talk with regulators, really just anything around consumption lounges that's bringing hospitality into the cannabis world. Um, and then from there, I actually joined Green Thumb Industries full-time for the last year where I built my second consumption lounge, uh, the first one east of the Mississippi, which is uh, Rise Mundelein. Um, just finished that project about 
two months ago. So now kind of coming back into the world consulting. Uh, I actually just spoke uh, with a lot of the Nevada regulators before passing some of their consumption lounge bills that's going to uh, have applications starting next month. Uh, and just open to some other projects and helping uh, push the consumption lounge efforts across the country. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, James, why don't you go next? Hi, my name is James Lathrop. Nice to see you all again. It seems like we keep doing these things. Someday we won't have to be fighting the world, but uh, for now we still are. Um, I founded Cannabis City, which was Seattle's first legal cannabis, uh, legalized cannabis uh, shop back in 2014. Prior to that, many of you know me as Dr. Lathrop from the AW Clinic. I had the Advanced Holistic Health Clinic for five years doing authorizations for patients, uh, which of course got completely destroyed uh, by the legalization of cannabis. But that's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about is cannabis clubs. Am I just doing an introduction? Okay, and uh, I will tell you more about the project that I'm working on when I'm up. Oh. <laughs> My name's Josh Kincaid, I'm a capital markets analyst with C3 and co-founder of Tor Alerts. Uh, a fintech platform that uses AI and machine learning to do trading for crypto and pot stocks. But if you go in the Wayback Machine to 2013, I left my job at Capital One managing a $650 million fund and wanted to start the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe, inspired by a friend who had multiple sclerosis and since passed away. He was in a federally subsidized facility across the street from high school, nowhere to go, rainy. Uh, it rains every day in Seattle. Tell everybody that so they don't move here. Um, but I wanted to bring a place for him to consume in a, in a safe spot. And so that didn't really exist. So I jumped on the CCSE, Coalition for Cannabis Standards and Ethics, way back in 2015 when I launched in April with the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe, only to have the LCB put a Class C felony on it in uh, July. I think it was like over the 4th of July weekend of 2015. Uh, so naively, I pivoted to catering event planning, thinking it would be a couple of weeks until they figured out what they did was wrong. And here we are like seven years later still talking about it. So uh, I jumped back into the committee, and then with the committee's help, we uh, drafted a bill, submitted it in 2019, and you all know what happened right after that. So here we are waiting for our time to hopefully get that pushed through. Uh, so looking forward to kind of talking about my, my journey. Hi. How are you guys doing? He's, he's back. <laughs> uh, again, I'm Brian Mathis. Uh, prior to 2019, uh, the Mathis Cooperative was uh, act, acting as um, insulation between producer processors or retailers and uh, anyone who and throwing events because, like you mentioned, is a Class C felony. Uh, the retailers, producer processors didn't want to um, shoulder that burden. They would hire me to or the Mathis Cooperative to throw the events underneath the name and the banner of Mathis Cooperative um, as 2019 hit and COVID, it obviously shut the doors on events or cannabis friendly events. Um, when, when we were allowed to get back into the game, I went back to the same place that I'd been renting to get ready to start throwing 710 and 420 parties again for other producer processors and was told the business was closed. So I promptly purchased the business. And up in Bellingham, it's called The Happy Place. And it was, and it's the idea for me uh, initially was to have a safe space for cannabis consumption within the industry. Obviously, it's a class C. So I can't advertise it. I can't talk about it. But the, the idea, the hope, just like everyone else is that we have, we can stop smoking in our garage um, and worrying about 
or being tried as criminals for something that's brought in $560 million in the fiscal year of 2021, right? Um, so me being here, this is an absolute passion project. The end game for me is to own um, or be a part of a group that owns cannabis consumption lounges across the U.S., slightly personal so that I can smoke anywhere I go, but also, <laughs> also it is the gateway to normalizing this. Weed is not a crime, but yet we are still prosecuted and we are still treated and the government is making loads of money off of it and we're still hiding from it. So that's why I'm up here. Thank you very much. Um, okay, since I'm the lawyer, we're gonna talk a little bit about the laws that make this so difficult. Um, and we're gonna get that out of the way here. Um, so as mentioned, um, it's a class C felony. The felony is actually for being a club, um, but there are penalties for public consumption as well. So the RCW says that it's unlawful to open a package containing cannabis usable cannabis, cannabis-infused products, yada, yada, or consume cannabis, usable cannabis, cannabis-infused products, um, in view of the general public or in a public place. It's a, it's a uh, class three civil infraction, um, which means that it's a $50 fine, basically. Um, the other statute... Okay, well, we're not going to cite that one, but the other one is if you are actually being doing what these gentlemen want to do, and that's punishable by 10 years in prison. Um, it's kind of a big deal. So even in just kind of being on the cutting edge of this particular part of our industry, I would argue it's the most dangerous place to be right now. Um, unlike Washington, uh, Alaska, legalized consumption lounges in 2019. Does anybody know why they were the first to do it? No, it's because cruise ships come in, they roll in, it's a huge source of income, and they have a crap ton of tourists who want to smoke weed and there's nowhere to go. So little towns like Homer and Sitka would have the cruise ship roll in and then a bunch of old people would be token up in the middle of the street. So that they actually had a really good motivation to make that happen pretty quick. Um, then I guess we also had California, which legalized it for retailers. We have um, Colorado, which does it like a banquet system, banquet license type thing, which looks like, I think, I can't remember if Nevada is going that way too. But at any rate, this is happening in multiple states. It's just not happening here yet. This is important for social justice reasons too. And I know we keep coming back to this, but if you don't own your own home, where are you gonna smoke pot? Well, if you're a renter, you get kicked out if your landlord's not cool with it, right? So where are you supposed to go that's not a public place? So now you have a $50 fee just because you don't own your own home and you need to go out so you don't lose the home you have, right? What else? Uh, do you live in a federally funded housing project? Bye, no more housing, fund, you know, no more for you, right? You're already struggling and then you do that and you're out. Who does that affect disproportionately? Everybody together, BIPOC. BIPOC community takes the brunt of this. So it's just more and more insult to injury. So we'll probably talk about this more and I would encourage all of you to throw in whatever you want about that part, but um, that's something just to always keep in the back of your head. We're not just talking about people who wanna hang out on a couch and smoke. Um, okay, so I would like to start with Josh. 
Uh, Josh, as he said, although I, he probably could say it a lot more forcefully, has done an amazing amount of work on this issue over the years. He has been so proactive and kept so positive, which I don't know how you always do that. Um, but so I want you to tell people about kind of what this journey looks like from a from a legislative standpoint, from a rulemaking standpoint. Sure. Um, well, we first reached out uh, to uh, Rep. Kloba. She was very open to that when we went down to Olympia as a committee a committee to check out um, Joe's Garage, I think is what it was called, and find out how they were offering consumption. So we went down there. We did a live um, like podcast or whatever. Um, and kind of in, invited the community there to find out where they were at. So what we found out um, just from Olympia, from the state capitals perspective, is that they really wanted to focus on medical patient access. They also wanted a social equity program, and then they wanted to know more about small business growth. In other words, how to limit uh, the multi-state operators and outside capital investment concerns. Um, so we just kind of went at that uh, point by point. And uh, just like the medical access or market that used to exist in Washington, trying to, to kind of replicate that on the, the local level at that lounge or, or cafe scene. Social equity program, great opportunity for those licenses to have that priority. Um, it should be uh, a huge opportunity. It's kind of the, the soul into the industry, in my opinion. It's a window into the community. And when they see it, they'll realize it's benign. It's, um, it's not nefarious. Once they see it, it'll be a lot more relaxed. And so uh, I believe that um, once we have cafes, there will be a lot more relaxation in more conservative markets as well. And then small business growth. Of course, um, there's been a lot of back and forth with outside investment. I think um, Washington kind of took more conservative routes, but nonetheless, um, that's what they wanted to see at the local level. We've been fighting that. And that's really how we tailored the bill when we drafted it, looking at those three main standpoints. Uh, was the first, I guess, point that, that we needed to, to address. Okay, so when it comes to kind of trying to get ready for this, um, both Brian and James have been waiting, <laughs> but doing so productively. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. Um, Brian, can you talk about what you're doing with your space? Uh, first being very, very safe. So when you speak about um, what the LCB will allow, uh, went to the LCB anonymously to ask them exactly what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. They gave me a set of rules that would not allow them to either come in or to even notice. And the first thing that they said was no one from the outside can come into the end, can be able to see what's going on on the inside. So if, if it's not visible to the public, then that's a, that's a step in the right direction. So one of the first things we did when I took over the place uh, was frosted the entire front windows. Then we put curtains in across the front. So when you walk and the door is open, you can't see through. Um, then set up um, security cameras that can be viewed offsite uh, just in case. So Short answer to your question is, I went through and tried to LCB proof the place is the best way to say it, um, to make sure, because like you said, it is it's still 10 years, I have a 10 year um, sentence, I, I have three daughters all under the age of 10, I don't want to be in a situation that the wonderful weed lady was in at all. Um, so I'm, best thing that I can do is make sure that I'm off their radar, 
and that the events that do occur there continue to stay off their radar, right? Have you had any problems with municipalities? No, with only for sound, not for consumption. That's interesting. So you're in a friendly jurisdiction. Bellingham is extremely friendly. Yeah. Bellingham is an extremely friendly cannabis city, and it's wonderful. One of the reasons that I, I don't want to get too much into it, but one of the reasons that I moved to Washington was because at the time, my girlfriend, who was now my wife, was from, uh, lived in Bellingham and was telling me, and I was in Florida smoking Florida weed, mm -hmm. and she brought me some Washington weed, and I was like, holy moly, what is this? So um, left Disney World, went to Washington, and... Uh, and fell in love with the community and just how much they embrace cannabis up in Whatcom County and, and Bellingham and how huge it was. And um, went to my first cannabis soiree there and I was like, oh my God, these are my people. How do I do this more? How can I, and, and how can I make this a regular thing? How can I make this more normalized? Because I can't speak for everyone else, but I'd much rather be in a room full of potheads and a room full of drunks. I feel safer in a room full of potheads. I have no problem with my kids being around a room full of potheads. I do a full of room full of drunks. And so for me, that's what I want to see. And if that's what I want to see, the best thing I can do is try and use my loud voice, my giant smile to, to, to uh, advocate for it. Thank you. James, I'm going to talk about your experience. So I've gone the complete opposite direction in that <laughs> I'm way out there <laughs> on, uh, on Lander down at the Soto light rail stop with gigantic windows pictures of weed on the windows. And in fact, weed lady, you'll appreciate it. On the shop, it says weed here. <laughs> and what I've done <laughs> is I'm pushing the, the boundaries the other direction. And I've built a cannabis club where unfortunately, cannabis is prohibited. And it's called the Prohibition Bar. You can Google it at prohibition.bar is the website. And, you know, there's lots of prohibition bars across the United States, and they're, you know, kind of like 1920s themes, cocktails, this and that. Well, this is the prohibition of weed, and this space is a political statement in that I have built, for all practical purposes, a cannabis club. It goes in, you go in there, and you see Tommy Chong, and, you know, you listen to reggae, and you, it's, it's a cannabis club, but cannabis is prohibited within the walls. And in fact, the only way I can make it functional then is to sell alcohol, which really breaks my heart. So it's a cannabis club that sells alcohol for consumption. Um, I agree with the weed lady. I think what we really need is cannabis drinks. I'm gonna throw this out there to the industry. I really think that we should have two milligram cannabis drinks on tap because you really wanna be able to go out and have three or four drinks with your friends. You have three or four 10 milligram drinks and maybe a cocktail, wah! So what I would really love to see to fight the alcohol industry is every bar in the state be able to have a cannabis drink on tap at it, like two milligrams. And you know, let people start making the choice between alcohol and, and cannabis. Thank you. Let, I got a little bit more. You to got go. more? Keep got going, more. keep going. So, so my idea of cannabis consumption clubs is for it to be every bar in the state, not so much clubs like what, what we've got. So what I've got is a political statement. And I just wanna give you a little bit of an overview of the project so you can come check it out and you, and you can see. And, uh, and, and, and before I get into that, I do wanna tell you the one time that I was sued by the city of Seattle. Seattle is not cannabis friendly, unlike what people would think. So in my original location, I had a little... <laughs> 
Round from Neil, Neil Indonesia, Klimwa. Yes, took it on. And uh, we won. And here, and you need to know about this case because this is significant. So when I had my little square, 600 square foot shop over on 4th Avenue, I built a smoke deck around the corner. And, and what the purpose of it was to fit the legal smoking laws, i.e. 25 feet from every door and window and built a deck and called it a smoke deck. Okay. It wasn't you can smoke whatever you want, right? You know, as far as I'm concerned, you can smoke crack because it's a smoke deck, but it's a legal tobacco smoking deck. And this is the other way that I think we need consumption in Washington State. Washington State is really going to push back on smoke clubs because they've gotten rid of smoke from everywhere. But why can't we just have it synonymous with cigarettes and you can legally smoke a cannabis joint anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, 25 feet from each door, yada, yada. So anyway, I built this smoke deck. And of course, City of Seattle decided to sting me. <laughs> they sent an agent down who bought a joint and asked the bud tender, where can I smoke this cannabis cigarettes? And he was like, well, you know, you know there's, a, there's a deck around the side. And so they sued me $2,000 for operating a cannabis club. <laughs> Luckily, the argument that uh, Neil Janage was able to put forward is completely valid. This is, this is a public space that, sure, I built the deck, but it was basically out in the open on the sidewalk. Anybody can smoke crack or do whatever else. I can't control that deck. Um, and so what I, what I think we can do is basically build smoke areas in smoking areas and, you know, let the people decide it is that $50 ticket. But what we need to do is push the legislature to say, hey, smoke joints where you can smoke cigarettes. Okay, one last thing, just a quick overview of my project. It's called the Cannabis City Cultural Center. And it's got three businesses. It's got Cannabis City as a retail shop. It's got the Prohibition Bar where cannabis is prohibited. The only cannabis club in the state where cannabis is prohibited. And then in the back, I've got a art and event space, another 3,500 square foot space. And it's gonna be open to all kinds of events. The first event actually is coming up is the artist Henry. will be having a art exhibit on December 10th. So come check out the project. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanna reiterate, cause this is gonna come up um, in a minute, I know, I know. Um, so the Clean Air Act in Washington is that you cannot smoke indoors anywhere, anywhere. <laughs> okay, so then you have your 25 foot thing. And so that's a real problem um, to push back against in, especially in Seattle, to be honest with you. So um, anyway, but Sarah, and you're gonna talk a little bit about this. Sarah has real world lounge experience. <laughs> um, can you tell us, uh, kind of your journey through uh, working in, you know, getting the lounge developed, working in it, what you're seeing, what you, what obstacles you're facing? Sure. A lot of my experience is coming from licensed venues that are serving cannabis on site, not really event driven, really turning tables. And what does that look like? And how are we normalizing cannabis in a public setting that probably looks more like a bar or lounge than, you know, a, a liquor store or a dispensary? Um, so it's really interesting. I've been working in three different states now. Every single state is completely different. Uh, go figure on what a consumption lounge needs and needs to look like. The first one is that there are some regs that have been passed that um, are really making it actually more difficult for these lounges to open. The first one is that they did pass a series of edibles only lounges, and it's actually causing a lot more problems than they originally anticipated. This is because a lot of the prod products in these markets are not made for 
edible consumption on site. And if they are, they're usually 10 milligrams, even five milligrams. And that's not really creating an experience. You can literally take an edible anywhere that you go and, you know, no one's really stopping you from doing it. So how is an edibles only lounge A, going to make money and B, kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier with the beverages, not many people are thinking to make two and a half milligram single serving drinks so that you can have three or four of them instead of just a one and done sale. Edibles only lounges are extremely difficult for revenue, but honestly, all lounge models are difficult for revenue. Um, you know, if we're talking about retailers, they're used to seeing pretty high margins, especially MSOs. They're also used to seeing high profits. Lounge operations simply are not going to look that way. They run more like a restaurant would, which does run on lower margins and lower profits. So it's kind of unrealistic, some of the, the regs that are being passed right now. Also, everybody's really coming into these lounges to physically smoke. Look at me, look what I'm doing in public. This is not something that I've ever done before. We've all drank a drink out in public. We've all taken an edible at our favorite restaurant. We've all hit the vape in the bathroom. This is the normalized approach to this, which is unfortunately the smoking factor of these consumption lounges. Um, the, the bigger issue that comes with that is that you need the revenue stream for food and beverage, you know, um, concerts, live music, a movie theater, whatever that looks like, you need the revenue. And the, the companies that are really going to succeed are looking at hospitality first and cannabis second as an offering. However, if the regs aren't allowing you to serve food and beverage, then you have a bigger problem on hand and you're wondering how am I even making money in this space? Um, something I've noticed in Michigan is that they are allowing edibles only, or I'm sorry, they're allowing consumption lounge licenses that don't allow for the sale of cannabis in that space. That means that they're only allowing for bring your own models, which could cause even bigger issues with how do you know that the products that are coming in are legal? They're in the market. How do you know what they're consuming if they've overconsumed? How do you, it's really just the control factor in that. And it does, you know, kind of limit that revenue stream as well, which we all know in that case, cannabis is the main revenue stream. Um, and then there's places like Illinois, which are requiring that all lounges are connected to dispensaries. Uh, you have a lot of health problem, health department issues when that's the case, because a lot of these states consider ice and water as food production. And as you were saying earlier about the no smoking areas, you cannot produce food or ice or I'm sorry, water or ice in an area where cannabis is consumed. Therefore, it makes it very difficult to have a consumption lounge and also serve water and ice at the most basic level. So it's really important that these regs as they're being passed are really thoughtfully you know, curated because otherwise these people are getting awarded licenses. Nevada's licensing application fee is $100,000 and there's no guarantee. And you know they're kind of just gonna be fighting against themselves once they start to get up and running and operating. Um, and then the last thing I would say is really a build out. A lot of people think, you know, I'm going to build a lounge. I have this amazing retail footprint and I'm just going to take the extra 2000 square foot behind it. If we're talking smoking lounges, it's really not as effective. If you think about a liquor store, you don't really purchase a liquor store and then say, I'm going to build a cafe behind it. You build a cafe, you build a hospitality driven operation, and then you maybe create more of a to-go counter for the liquor store component. Same exact thing with consumption lounges. You need 
isopropyl alcohol for bongs and devices to be cleaned away from guest consumption so they can't smell it. And that requires a whole separate area from maybe where your water is going to be coming from or prepackaged items. Um, so there's a lot of things aside from just smoke eaters or you know clearing, like you were talking about the windows and not being able to see out. That's very standard in these lounges that are coming up in every state is that they're really not allowing any external view except for New York, actually. New York is going to allow that uh, with rooftops and things. But, um, and then the last thing is just thoughtful table space. People are, you know, there's a grinder, there's an ashtray, there's bongs, there's papers, there's, you know, there's so many things on the table now. And so people think, oh, I'll just build, you know, an area that people can come in and walk around. But actually, if you're looking at the reservation-based turning tables, you need much, much more area now in order to accomplish, accomplish what we're trying to accomplish here, which is the normalized maybe table side service or restaurant setting or something that people are already familiar with or doing already. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so that's what it could be like, right? Or this is this whole like the foundations in the future. <laughs> These guys are trying to build the foundations that in some form or another is going to be the future. The question is, how do we get there? And I actually want to ask Josh uh, this question before kind of throwing it out there for questions from y'all is what I know you've been working on this, working on this, working on this, this next legislative session. What are you doing and what have you changed to try to maybe make it more palatable or what are the things you've already tried that haven't worked? We took a conservative approach. So when we reviewed the 11 bills um, being Las Vegas, New Jersey, Oregon, Colorado, Alaska, California, which included the San Francisco and West Hollywood bills, Illinois, Massachusetts, and then Washington that uh, Bailey Hirschberger wrote and has a really good uh, report from last September, a 14 page report on basically why they shouldn't block it, why they should allow it. So if you haven't seen that, check that out, really great resource. I think in order to move forward, we have to get rid of a lot of roadblocks. And some of that is gonna be the whole part about indoor smoking, right? So employees in a smoking environment, um, they're gonna have a massive anti-smoking lobby that you're going to have to hit head on and you need to be prepared for that. Ventilation is huge, but we've made strides. So case in point, in 2015, they wanted us to clear the room every hour to the point where you needed a 747 jet engine, like no exaggeration. And so now they're they're finally on par with reality and what what we can really need and use in order to make that work. Um, there are air, air purification HVAC systems that we saw at, at Smokey Joe's El Gaucho. Nobody's complaining about that cigar bar. Um, so the Clean Air Indoor Act, I really like the, the part about New Jersey where they literally just wrote it down. Uh, and so with the strike of a pen, it was it was magic. So we permanently borrowed that one and said that this the. This bill makes the hospitality space an exemption to the Clean Air Indoor Act. I thought that was brilliant. So we went with that. Uh, we're also going to have the impaired driving lobby that's going to hit us head on. And so there's been a lot of work with that. I think we've seen the statistics where uh, impaired driving is, has been decreased in every uh, regulated rollout. And there's a massive amount of uh, swap from the alcohol industry to cannabis that could be um, attributed to that. Uh, obviously, we, we can't have things like dab torches, you know, Norm would, would 
maybe flip out with that with insurance. But how do you give out free samples or giveaways or have vendor days? You know, how, how are you able to help the community get out there? And I mean, like advertising uh, and, and generating food revenue, like Sarah said, is a huge issue on how to generate revenue. How are they going to survive? Because it didn't work in Portland and it wasn't just COVID. They were failing long before that because they weren't allowed to make food. They weren't allowed to be a head shop. They weren't allowed to sell direct to the, the consumers. So revenue is a massive, massive issue. And location, you're a thousand feet from everywhere. So where are you going to have a facility at? All of these things are the things that we have to uh, address in order to move forward. And revenue is going to be huge. So there's a lot of different uh, other opportunities that, in addition to what Sarah mentioned, but revenue is going to be a massive barrier. Thanks a lot. Um, I wanted to open it up to questions. If anybody has questions for the panel. Well, we have to start with the weed lady. I mean, come on. Uh, can, thank you, Caitlin. It's just something that I want to contribute because we just did it in Oakland, California at a dispensary, Rosemary Jane. And it's a full bar and I curated the mocktails. And so you can walk up and you can order a ginger, a rosemary mule or a pineapple margarita. There's five mocktails, no liquor in them. And then Cohen makes a shot in, in different uh, milligrams. So it could CBD, THC, et cetera. And then you pick the shot that you want to go into it. But we have the same problem with the food, right? And so then we had to get a space designated uh, specifically for vendors to sell. So we can invite now a taco truck onto the patio and they can sell or whatever food vendor. So we've got the food taken care of. We've got the cannabis beverage bar taken care of, but you still can't smoke. And so at the most recent event that I threw, all of the people, all of they're outside. They just take a step outside. And so now you split your party in two. Um, and so it's it's more of a statement than a question, encouraging this fight to continue because it's where we need to be in order to make this happen and encouraging the the lounge style we have service, right? You come place your order, we're gonna place it. We can't pour it ourselves, but we'll set it up in a manner that you would at your local cafe. Um, but normalizing the smoking is is as, as harmful as it is, right? The tobacco has done that for us. We know that that part is harmful, but it still separates what we really wanna do and, and that smoke. And so I, I appreciate across the board, people who are pushing this message forward because I do think that that's where this, this goes. And so I just wanted to say thank you, really. Thank you. I just wanted to uh, follow up on that. If you have an edibles only bar, you're not addressing the whole uh, racially disproportionate impact of no public place to consume, right? You're not addressing that at all. And so that's another strike against it. Although, you know, obviously the clean air concerns are valid. I mean, you've got to kind of deal with those. Oh, oh. I was just going to just kind of pull the room to see how many of you uh, go to Las Vegas on a regular occasion. How many of you have had a chance to visit uh, the Nuwu Lounge owned and operated by the Las Vegas Paiute tribe? 
Yeah. First lounge in the nation uh, that was opened as a consumption lounge where you can have a full dab experience, uh, you know, flower experience uh, in Las Vegas. And so if, you know, you want to see the proof of concept and see some of the policies behind that development, I definitely encourage you to uh, have that experience. But um, also, you know, if you're out in New York, again, some of the most amazing cannabis lounge experiences, uh, deeply rooted with legacy cannabis community there in New York, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, there was some name dropping earlier, definitely Last Prisoner Project, great, great work uh, under the foundation of Steve D'Angelo. It was actually Steve D'Angelo that brought me to my first cannabis lounge in New York, and it was an amazing experience uh, to be able to walk in and, you know, be able to walk over to a little table and pick out your trays and your grinders and, you know, have a, a friendly um, bud tender help you with your legacy cannabis products. Um, but New York um, still definitely has a lot of work to be done. Earlier was mentioned, you know, about their their um, their does um, uh, equity programs um, that that left indigenous communities out. But I strongly encourage you to look at some of the development in Indian country around cannabis lounges because they're they're definitely. I find that so interesting because we were just having this conversation about how conservative and slow moving tribes can be. So, and, and, and that's been my experience as well. It's just, it's, it's the pace of that things change. It's just, especially around this issue, as you guys discussed so well, right? Um, that, that it would be the, the Paiutes who are like on the cutting edge. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. All the way back there. Thank you. So I've been in talks with a New Jersey retail and consumption lounge applicant. He's a young citizen advocate. He's got deep roots in the community. He's also a minority applicant. So I really hope to see him succeed. My question is for all of you, do you have any resources that I can share or any organizations that are focused on the consumption lounge issue? And on that note, uh, you've mentioned some of the challenges in the various cannabis markets. Are there any markets that stand out to you in terms of sound consumption regulation? Um, happy to go first. Yeah, Sarah, please. Um, on the first one, it's, little, it's a little premature in Jersey because they haven't written those regs yet. And so it's hard to really know what that's going to look like, especially on a city level. I think they're still working on figuring out who's going to be opting in. Um, I have spoken to a few people there, but they're also looking at the same model of um, and it's good that your friend has a retail license because they're they're trying to take the same model of um, you can have consumption here, but it cannot be purchased here. It's really just a place for people to consume, which is difficult, more difficult to make money. I would say that Vegas is doing a really good job on their regulations for the most part. However, there are some issues here and there. In the beginning, they did want to do uh, one gram per person. Uh, per transaction, we kind of went back and said, operationally, this is going to be a, a headache. But their idea was because they didn't want the lounges to compete with retail dispensaries, just like liquor stores and bars don't compete because you can't take anything home from a lounge, just like you can't take anything home from a bar. And you can only purchase at a liquor store like you could a cannabis dispensary. Um, the only problem, I guess, with that is that you really just want to make sure the products that are in the marketplace 
are up to speed with that and they're actually carrying the right products for your market. Um, for instance, with one gram per person per transaction, you couldn't even sell a pre-roll pack. You literally could only sell one gram to a single person before having to move on to the next. Um, so in, in the most part, I do think Nevada is doing a really good job with theirs. Um, I wouldn't say any are perfect though, but I do like that New York is opening the idea to more of a open public consumption so that the normalization push is really the focus of that. And then um, I'll add to that. I didn't find any of the 11 bills that I read to be perfect. So that's kind of why we aggregated them. So if your friend wants to take a look at what we did, I don't, I don't mind sharing that. And then also that, that thing I mentioned about Bailey Hirschberger's report from September last year, that 14 page report encapsulated everything that as a, he was part of the committee and he basically summarized everything that we talked about. So over the nine months of writing that bill, he summarized everything. And then, because that was four years ago, he's added since then a lot of states that we didn't talk about because they weren't around. So he's really summarized and done a really good job about uh, fighting like really defined points about why, you, why this shouldn't be a big issue. And so I think he's really summarized a really good report. So we'll make that available. Another, another win for the Cannabis Observer. Um, she also asked about organizations, right? Is there any kind of larger besides the Cannabis Alliance that you've encountered? No, Cannabis Alliance. Yeah. Oh, there you go. California Cannabis Tourism Association. There you go. The question was, where does the Amsterdam model fall short? I don't think it falls short, but there's going to be regulatory issues. So in terms of the revenue model, the social use model that we picked was that Dutch coffee shop model. But um, I think we're going to have to settle for a nonprofit registered member only model because it's a lot more conservative than that open. They just have to be way more open to that concept. So that's why I don't think it'll work because it's, it's not conservative enough. That's my opinion. Yeah, um, Norm Ives here. I, I just wanted to talk about what is and isn't available to the consumption related businesses when it comes to insurance. Because when we talk about consumption, that's something that's really scary for the insurance companies. I, I, I write policies. I, I, I looked at GTI's model for the controls that they put in place for their cannabis lounge. I write a number of consumption spaces that I insure in California. And I will tell you the thing that is scary to the insurance carriers where I spend my day making them comfortable is understanding what intoxication looks like within a given regulatory model. And that really complicates the conversation from an insurance company or from a business planning risk management standpoint of, hey, look, I'm a regular consumer. I haven't consumed in the several hours that I've been here during this event, haven't consumed at all. I guarantee you I could go out right now and pop positive for intoxication in this state, and yet I've consumed nothing here. And when you think about that from a business risk management standpoint or from an insurance standpoint, I could show up at this event, there could be consumption going on here, I could be nowhere near that consumption get in an accident on my car drive on the way home, and now I'm defending myself against an intoxication exposure that technically I, I probably don't have because the rules in this state say I'm impaired just walking around because I have it already in my bloodstream. And, and when we talk about that and, and what I would encourage the business owners looking at consumption, 
as, as, an, as, a, as a broker, as somebody who spends my day convincing insurance companies that you are a good risk to take a gamble on, the things that the insurance carriers are looking for, what controls are in place to prevent overconsumption, to prevent overserving? How much do you allow to be consumed? You know, if you talk about an alcohol scenario, there's, there's, there's standards, there's practices in place of what looks like impairment, when do I call somebody, is there an Uber program? Those are all things that the insurance companies are looking at now around consumption spaces. And, and I will tell you from just a pure business model, I'm not endorsing any one model or another, but I will tell you from an insurance standpoint, any consumption space tied to a licensed operation is infinitely more insurable than a consumption only model space. Because when I go to a consumption only model scenario, it becomes much harder for an insurance company to wrap their head around the controls that you have in place. If you're allowing people to bring product in from the outside that you have not sold to them, what controls are in place to prevent overconsumption? And, and so as, as business individuals, I would just encourage you as you're thinking about these businesses, as we're talking about these legislative issues, this is, this is an octopus that has its tentacles into a lot of different places. You talk about the drug or drunk driving enforcement pieces. You talk about the indoor smoking pieces. You talk about what it looks like for impairment. All of those are pieces that I, I would encourage you to think about also from the practical business standpoint of, hey, as an insurance guy, it's my job to sell your business to the insurance company. Hopefully you as a business owner have a good idea around the risk protocols you're going to have in place to help me do that on your behalf. We also looked at the uh, safe injection site that San Francisco was proposing for that very reason. I was a very conservative overdose pre prevention method. And I, I also would love to add, this is a very big issue in every single lounge that I've built, especially with regulators. People don't know what they don't know. Sadly, we don't do this for bars, but we are going above and beyond for cannabis lounges. There are a couple of things that really stick out. One is uh, in West Hollywood, where we were busy, we saw a thousand people a day. I did see about eight to 10 pass outs per week. Most of that came from edible consumption. And a lot of it also came from alcohol coming in alcohol induced um, feelings after someone has, you know, already been drinking all day and then they're coming into a lounge. So I definitely agree with the insurance piece as well. It is something that comes up a lot. Something in Illinois that they've done, they put like a 30 minute time limit from when you've consumed last to whenever that driver is actually getting in a vehicle. Um, but that is where if you don't have food or you're not allowed to sell food on site, you're missing out on the sugar, amino acids, caffeine, all of these things that are really supposed to bring you back to life after consuming cannabis. So really when we're not allowing food, we're not allowing some of the overconsumption protocols that actually are important for that space. Thank you, Sarah. Any other questions? Well, then I get to wrap it up. Um, it's funny because kind of you guys have already touched on a lot of things that I wanted to touch on. And basically the, the takeaway is this is so much more complicated than most of you probably thought, right? This isn't just about having a room and a place to light a joint. There are so many legal concerns, 
which by the way, I'm with Norm on the risk. And so is Neil, right? We always have to worry about risk for our clients. You know, so you also have those risks. We are still behind in being able to deal with cannabis intoxication um, reliably in terms of law enforcement, uh, you know, Clean Air Act, um, you know, tourism, of all of these things all come together and in what otherwise kind of seems like maybe a simple uh, issue. And so I encourage you to remember that, and it, with a nod to Ms. Kloba, um, politicians have to juggle all of this stuff in addition to prevention, in addition to having all of these pull push groups. Um, they also have to wrap their heads around all of this. And we just talked for uh, over an hour, right? And we've just kind of skimmed the surface. So anyway, I'd like to thank the panel and Sarah for being ahead on the television. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. With that, we're gonna roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid, this is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.